Ocean Viking, Ocean Viking. This is Air Nav for my Air Asset. Good morning, ma'am. Can you confirm me if you have answered to uh, event 612? As soon as we hear on our little radios that we all carry, all teams prepare for rescue, it is just like flipping a switch and yeah, everyone gets into gear, everyone prepares their respective stations. That is a high level of adrenaline. The adrenaline runs high for everyone on board the Ocean Viking, for crew members and those who are rescued alike. Hello, I'm Emma Wallace. In today's episode of the Info Migrants podcast, Tales from the Border, we're in the central Mediterranean on board the Ocean Viking, run by the private rescue organization SOS Mediterranee. When we saw the Ocean Viking, the big boat, we were so, so happy. We were so happy we cried because we knew at least we are no longer in Libya. We were just so, so happy to have made it. Those who try and cross the Mediterranean from North Africa to Europe can face quickly changing weather systems with high seas, gale force winds and the dangers of their often overloaded boats sinking. Running out of food and water or being improperly dressed for a few nights adrift on the open sea is another common occurrence. Since 2014, more than 15,000 people have died on this route. And since 2020, there is no EU-wide led search and rescue operations. So those who do make it across hope and pray that organizations like SOS Mediterranee come to their rescue. My name is Julia. I am the communications officer, one of the communication officers for SOS Mediterranee. The Ocean Viking starts each mission from its home port of Marseille. Marseille Port Control, Marseille Port Control. This is the Ocean Viking on channel Good evening, madam. Uh, that is us uh, passing your breakwater outbound. Thanks very much for now. Uh, see you again next time. We are We've got two shelters on board. We call them shelters. They're basically um, constructions of containers on our open aft deck. One of them is for men at the bigger shelter, and then we've got one for women and children. We've got washrooms separated for both of these shelters individually. And then we've got an onboard clinic that is like a small but fully functioning hospital on board. And that's got an emergency room, an observation room, a midwife clinic. Go on very slowly, push my hand. Blow, very good, good. I take off your jacket. Very good, go on, push my hand. So when I will tell you that I will make the injection, you will do that, okay? Okay, so now show me how you do for breathing. No, no, you put your hand here. Voila. Hannah is one of the midwives who has worked on board the Ocean Viking, including on a mission alongside Julia. Everything is heightened. The people, when they come on board, uh, can be in a really critical state, either from the journey through from their origin country through Libya in detention centres, 
and plus being on the vessel that they are using to cross the Mediterranean. All of that combined means that the medical condition, the psychological condition of people is pretty extreme. But it's it's a shorter duration, so it's it's really intense, both the demand of and needs of the people, the emotion in terms of the compounded trauma from what they've been through to the rescue and then the uncertainty as well. Um, it's such an uncertain time for people once they are rescued. Um, so, yeah, I would describe it as extremely intense. It's not easy, but we are suffering from... Libyans, the way they are treating us, or treating us, sometimes they will catch you, they put money on you. Until you find money to pay them, they will not leave you. Michael is from Ghana. He was working in Libya when the war started, he told a DW reporter. He felt his only option was to get to Europe. According to the UN, in 2021, over 900,000 people are in need of humanitarian assistance in Libya. Migrants and displaced people face even more challenges as they are often imprisoned for ransom in Libya, their families extorted, sometimes several times, to pay for their release. Caught between a rock and a hard place, their only option can be to find enough money to board a boat. We are almost sink, because our boat was very, very small. And the moment we trying to Remove the water from this boat, the boat started sinking. But we thank God that we make the ocean vacancy. They took us out of the boat. They saved our life. We thank God and we thank them too. Like Michael, these women rescued by the Ocean Viking also told the communications officers that they had spent time praying whilst on their small boat and they thanked God and the big boat for saving them from dying at sea. <laughs> We thought we were just going to stay in that boat and die. Luckily, God came to our rescue. We had nothing to drink apart from seawater, and everyone knows you can't drink that. It's dangerous. We had nothing to eat either. We couldn't do anything about it. I had petrol on my foot, and it was really itchy. God, it was itchy. I was scratching and scratching. Luckily, once I got onto the big boat, they were able to wash it, and now it is a little better. When we saw the big boat, we were so, so, so happy. We'd been praying. When we saw it, we knew we were no longer in Libya. We were so happy, we cried, because we realized that the prayers we had made had been heard by God. We didn't know what was going to happen to us. It was so hard in Libya in the prison. Our parents didn't have enough money to get us out of prison. They raped us there in prison. They hid us there. It was awful. So when we saw that big boat, we were so happy. We sung. Some of us cried. We thanked God, and we were just so, so happy. If that big boat had not arrived, we would have died at sea. That is the truth of it. Our little boat was not going to survive. We had nothing left, no petrol, nothing. We couldn't have done anything about it. We were just going to die. The big boat came to save us and we thank God. We would have died. We couldn't do anything. 
Je ne peux rien faire, je ne peux pas m'asseoir. Et ça, c'est l'inverse. Nous tous, on, est, on, est, on était debout, on ne peut, peut rien faire. Alors, on était dans les prisons. Back in prison, we suffered so much. We cried so much, we weren't able to eat. They raped us, they refused to give us anything to eat, they just beat us. Our parents didn't have enough money to free us. My father is dead and my mother has to look after everything. So when we finally saw that big boat come to save us, we were so, so happy. So, so happy. In Libya, it was not easy at all, that's for sure. I just didn't know how to get enough money together to get out of that prison. My mother tried to scrape together enough money from various people. In the end, she borrowed from my cousins to get me out. But if I had then died in the Mediterranean, I don't know how she would have found the money to pay them back. So that's why we were so, so happy when we saw the big boat come towards us, as we knew we were saved. We prayed, but we didn't know if God would heed our prayers. We also thank you, the crew, so much, because you worked to save us. Thank you. Yes, it is, thanks to you. To you all that we didn't die at sea. Water was coming in, we wouldn't have survived. We were busy scraping up water and trying to push it out, but it kept coming back in. As soon as we gathered it to throw out, more was coming in. The little boat was not good. We thank you all, everyone who is working on this boat. We thank you all. We are so happy we could sing. I work both on board and on shore. And when I am doing um, my communications job on shore, you know, sometimes you, it's almost like you see tragedies unfold somewhat in real time because a distress alert might have been made public. You know that there are people out there. You know that no one, or at least not that you know, is going to the rescue. And I think this is a really, really horrific part of the work. Being on the mothership is quite noisy. Like you've always got engine noise in the background, the sound of the waves, and then obviously the fast rescue boats with their outboard motors. It is a noisy environment and and in many cases, sometimes you approach a boat in distress and even from pretty far away can already smell the fuel because fuel containers um, tip over and spill in the boats in distress. And then you can almost guess that people who have inhaled these fumes will be quite confused. This causes headaches, nausea, but also just causes disorientation, might make people more scared. So the search and rescue team leader, who will be the one person to speak to the people on the rubber boat in distress. We don't all go and wave and scream at them. Um, we'll have one dedicated person to speak to the people on the boat in distress, to first of all, make them understand that we're a humanitarian organization, they're safe, 
we're not returning them to Libya because obviously um, some of the people might have been intercepted and forcibly returned before. Um, but in either case, this is a big fear among people trying to flee Libya. So this is the first message that we try to get across. We are humanitarian organization, okay? We are here to help you The first rescue I was ever on a fast rescue boat for um, was actually a nighttime rescue and it was so about 100 kilometers 60 nautical miles off the Libyan shore in international waters there are some oil platforms and a lot of the time uh, or sometimes people are almost kind of incited to kind of navigate towards these platforms because they have bright lights and I've even heard of cases where smugglers have told people that this was Europe, that they could see Europe from the Libyan shores, which they absolutely cannot. But this might lead people to sort of end up there. And so the first rescue I ever witnessed from one of the ribs was actually kind of just below one of those oil platforms, which is a pretty impressive setting because basically it's it, you see like flames on the top of these structures and so on. And for me, to when we finally spotted the rubber boat in distress, for me to imagine what it must have been like for them in the middle of this just complete darkness, but seeing a completely overcrowded rubber boat like that in the middle of the night, that kind of seemed to appear before my eyes and putting myself in the position of the people who had been on that boat. This was so shocking and it was really hard to believe that this was that this is actually happening. Quiet, listen to me. We are here to help you, yeah? Can, can you please turn the engine off? Four children, one woman. Okay, you come in, thank you. Yeah, bridge, easy okay. one, to let you know that they are working, running out of fuel for your information. How many people did you count? 27 left. Okay, I'm happy for you guys to start loading and wait for us to come back, yeah? Yeah. Okay, guys, you're doing a very good job. Once we start you know, shuttling people to the mothership, to the Ocean Viking, of course the first priority is to take care of any emergency medical needs if there's any cases that need immediate assistance and then from there on yeah it is 24 hours um i mentioned before the problem of petrol and diesel spilling into the rubber boats or wooden boats that we encounter so um, also one of the first things we do is to check whether people um, have suffered any burns because fuel mixing with salt water in a rubber boat or a wood boat um, will lead to skin burns. So we might have to you know, get, we always get people out of their clothes, especially if they're soaked, especially if they're soaked in petrol. You all received a rescue kit. Inside of it, there's high energy foods, water, clothes, and a blanket. On board the Ocean Viking, Hannah and Julia have heard many of the stories from women and men who have survived sexual violence in Libya or on their journey towards the Mediterranean coast. The UN and other organisations have documented numerous testimonies of gang rape, abuse and atrocities. 
One Eritrean asylum seeker reported being held captive three times in 2017 and enduring gang rape, beatings and starvation until her family paid a ransom of $1,000 to secure her freedom. Women from Somalia, Ivory Coast and Nigeria have repeated similar experiences in the years since. One woman from Somalia said that in her prison, every day, someone died. Many came hoping for a better life, she said, but instead they saw pain and many lost their virginity to rape. Another woman from Ivory Coast said the rape was indiscriminate and being pregnant or breastfeeding did not spare women from this kind of treatment. Some women, forced into prostitution in so-called connection houses in Libya, had to endure being raped by up to 20 men a day, details a UN report. The women were not given any contraception and many subsequently got pregnant and were then forced to pay for dangerous abortions carried out in the same connection house. Girls, at least as young as 15, have regularly been subjected to this treatment. Any men protesting about this could also be beaten or killed. The stories that I heard from the women on board the Ocean Viking were astounding. The systematic nature of the sexual violence in Libya, the systematic nature of the sexual violence, it's used by people facilitating the journey across borders. It's also extremely common in detention centres against women and children and men. I knew the context, you can read about it, but when you hear the stories from the women yourselves, it's pretty shocking just how uh, widespread it is and and the kind of severity of it as well. I sometimes feel like we are getting almost a bit accustomed to what is going on in the central Mediterranean. We know that women in migration are at a high risk of being taken advantage of or having their rights just completely disregarded. We know that this is true for people, you know, crossing the desert and then trying to cross the central Mediterranean. So, yes, we encounter unbelievable resilience on the ship and we encounter just the most inspiring, sometimes funny, you know, witty people on board. This is absolutely the truth. I am going to communicate on what I see and hear at sea. I'm going to communicate truthfully and, you know, if it needs to be raw, it, it will be raw. And it was just so infuriating to me to hear this amount of stories of abuse and stories of just unfairness and to have the sense that, yeah, I mean, I guess we all know this, but I, I felt such an urge to write it down and to say, this is how it is. This is what happens when, you know, you ask a really, really young woman that you've rescued at sea, whether she knows if she's pregnant or not. It's not, you know, kind of by chance that they end up taking this incredibly dangerous journey. There is a reason that they're doing this and it's related to just, you know, everything that's happened in their lives. And when they come to us, they're, at, they're at, not even at the end, they're some way in the journey to trying to get to safety.
when they were with the women in the shelter were singing, doing this call and response, singing and dance. And I think that was something for me to see them and, you know, the emotion with which they were singing about Libya and everything. That's when it kind of hits you because you can see the, the emotion and intensity behind everything that they're saying. This was pretty late-ish at night and I was just kind of sat down in the door of the shelter and they were singing songs about, one of them was about all the things that were over, like slavery, it's over. This was always, the response was always, it's over. And like abuse, it's over. And captivity, it's over. And Libya is over. And then, you know, they were talking about, that one song was about what awaits um, once they reach a place of safety like peace and, and, and opportunity and, and things like that. Also, again, call and response. And I mean, these women had just kind of escaped the absolute tragedy and, and the, this way of them connecting with each other also. I mean, this is a really mutually supportive way of, of, of interacting and, and talking about these shared experiences without you know, it being like a group therapy session. And you've got all these children also running around between everyone's legs and blankets. When the children first are on board, they're often wet, wet and cold. So it's really, it's really quite chaotic. The boat that shuttles between the, the vessel in distress and, and, the, and the mothership, the Ocean Viking, we had a a whole fast boat full of children <laughs> in the winter. So it was just baby after baby after child after child. And they're all, you know, obviously pretty distraught, except for the one month olds who don't really know what's going on. But once they're, you take off their wet clothes and they get into warm clothes and they're dry and they have something to eat and drink, then they, they seem to calm down really, really quickly. The children who are a bit older, I'd say starting from around, 9, 10, 11, you can sense after a couple of days, you could, you could sense that there was some pretty heavy stuff going on for those kids as well. The younger ones, you know, they seem fairly resilient. They are playing, they do seem happy, but as, as soon as they're starting to get a bit older already, you can kind of see the, their interior, you know, kind of coming through to the surface a bit more that now that the the relief of being on board is over and and perhaps things are quieting down a bit more. Man overboard! Man overboard! In particular, there was one unaccompanied minor. It was a young woman, technically a child, which we saw a lot of in the winter and is happening more and more, these kind of teenagers who are making the journey. There was this teenager, she suffered some violence and she disclosed this to me and because of the violence, she had a complication which she needed treatment for. So we were able to provide that treatment for her. And she did all of this by herself. She approached me very confidently. She discussed her issues. She discussed her experiences. She went through with the treatment and 
she was just really, really ecstatic afterwards and really happy that she could have this treatment and it was, I felt really attached to her because I think what we could give her was, was life-changing and um, especially at such a young age as well, I was really glad that we were there for her and if, if we hadn't been there, if she'd gone straight to Europe and the mainland, I don't know what care she would have received, I don't know if she would have received the same treatment that would have been so life-changing, so that was a particularly special case. Really makes you believe in what you do. Okay. Let's go. If you rescue a lot of people in a short time frame, you're just, you don't really have the time to sit down and cry at the unfairness of the world. I definitely get very emotional at disembarkations, for example, because this is such a conundrum of emotions and so many different feelings at once. You're relieved, you're happy for the people that get to you know, set foot on solid ground and, and reach, hopefully, safety. But you also know that there's so much lying ahead for them. And then also, of course, you know, if you experience sort of your maybe your first break in, in days or weeks. Um, and then, yeah, we do cry. We do the bare minimum. They should have never had to have these experiences. They should have never been treated this way. And then we do what really is the bare minimum, and they thank us. Since it was founded in 2015, SOS Méditerranée has come to the assistance of over 30,000 people, first on board the Aquarius and since 2019 on board the Ocean Viking. The Ocean Viking costs 14,000 euros per day to keep running. Hannah, a midwife, and Julia, a communications officer, have both worked on rescue missions on board. I think immediately when they come on board and they realise that they're physically safe on board the ship, there's obviously a lot of relief, euphoria, There's they can be collapsing just out of the, the sheer overwhelming feelings that they have. I think something that is probably a bit disturbing is just the ease with which people would come and discuss the, the violence they've experienced. I mean, it must just be so present because we were getting people coming into the clinic and maybe presenting with other symptoms, but very soon it was clear that actually what they were coming for and the reason they were coming to see us was to discuss the violence that they experienced. We were loaded like merchandise onto vans in order to cross the Niger Desert, said one survivor from Cameroon once on board the Ocean Viking. Another described Libya as hell. Gangs always wanted to abuse us, said another. When you scream, they whip you even with your baby who is crying. If you have a phone or money, they take it all away. They leave you penniless. It was really difficult, very difficult. To make us get on the boat, said another, they whipped us. The smugglers, they said, had weapons. One woman was pregnant. They whipped her until she aborted. One child was so scared at seeing his mother whipped that he escaped, said his mother, who said the smugglers refused to let her pursue her child. All she can do is hope that he is now with her sister, who is still in Libya, she told Julia.
it's hard for me to assess in that moment. We do psychological first aid. People seem stable. They seem relieved that they can talk about it, how they're actually doing deep down and, and the long-term effects of it. I can only imagine. I don't like to talk about resilience because I think that sometimes resilience is used as a way to say, well, people get through it and they're resilient. I think sometimes it can take away from actually the, the devastating nature of it. But at some point they do go on and they continue. But before they can continue their journey, many survivors face a wait of days or even weeks before the Ocean Viking is assigned a port of safety. This has become known as a so-called standoff. So have to be a bit careful with how much water we use, OK? So if you're waiting, can you come and wait on this side to wash, to wash clothes? Come and wait this side. What can I do for you? What do you need? We weren't assigned a, a, a port or a place of safety for over a week. I think it was 10 or 11 days. I'd read articles about the standoff process and this kind of technique by the authorities to punish NGOs and keep us at sea with three to 400 people on board. I'd read about this, but I don't think I really understood just just how cruel that is when you're there on board with, with the people who are just desperate to, to go on land. I often think of this standoff during my first mission at sea, which lasted for almost two weeks. And during this standoff, we had we happened to have five little girls on board that were kind of in the same age group. They were all between I think four and eight, maybe, or four and seven. And these little girls, I was just, I think I will never forget because they, I mean, one of the most beautiful signs, I think, um, is when children you know, play and are really just children. And these girls, became so confident while they were on board and so cheeky. And they just, they had such an aura of joy and play around them. And wherever they appeared, it's like they brought fun or, or, or joy to everyone that was in their surrounding. And I often think of them. I mean, I see it as such a, privilege and responsibility. I think it's really our aspiration and there's always room for improvement, but to give people the chance to speak also for themselves, to really convey the fact that these are individual human beings that have their proper voice, that have a level of agency. I see it as such a privilege and such a such a responsibility as well. My name is Adam. I'm 20 years old. I'm from Nigeria. Nigeria. Yeah. Why did you have to leave your country? Because of many problems I'm facing in my country. You know, kidnappers. I'm from northern Nigeria. Understand? Boko Haram and kidnappers. Because they used to kidnap us, especially in my state. They will kidnap you, like when they are seeing people coming, they will block the road and carry all the people, push them inside a bush, start asking for money. When you don't have the money, they shoot you. So I decided to run away, understand? Because I love my life. I have something to do in my life. My life is very important. I see many things. One man in the desert, two weeks in the desert. No food, you understand? In the desert. And they will be putting you something to hide you because they don't want Arab man to see you. Arab people in Libya, they don't want them to see you. 
and this thing is getting worse. Libyan people used to catch people there, put them in prison. They will beat you, they will, they will go and put it at your back. So you call your parents crying, they will beat you, take your video, beating you like animal. You still have a family back home? Yeah, my mother, I always remembering her, you know. My father is alive, my mother is alive, all my family is alive. Do they know that you are alive? Now, that is the best thing I want to do because they don't know. I want to confirm, I want to call my mother, I want to make, I know if she's seeing me, if, if she hear my voice, she's going to be happy. Yeah, man. Um, this is where I am today, I'll tell her. Now, mother, smile, I'm in Europe now. Just be smiling, I'm okay. That is what I want now. I really want to hear my mother's voice. Every life that we've saved is an immense inspiration of hope on the mission that has just now ended, the most recent mission of the Ocean Viking. My colleagues on board witnessed the aftermath of a really devastating shipwreck that, that killed up to 130 people. And this was really, really horrific. And they later, a couple of days after, saved more than 200 people. So this is more than 200 stories of hope because these people survived. And this is a song they, I guess, came up with about the Ocean Viking. And it basically says, Ocean Viking, we trust you, or you've got what it takes to inspire trust. And it was, yeah, kind of a song of praise, gratitude. It was really, really moving. Yeah, I felt like them celebrating being rescued and being alive. Uh, we have some really good news this morning. Uh, we are going to Italy, to Pozzalo, where you will all disembark. This episode of the Info Migrants podcast, Tales from the Border, was put together with extensive recordings from on board the Ocean Viking from the communications team of SOS Mediterranee, as well as the resident journalists they carry on board, including Sandy McKee, Flavio Gasperini, and the French photographer Hippolyte. Our thanks to Julia and Hannah from SOS Mediterranee for the interviews they granted us. Join us in the next three episodes to hear tales from the border in Serbia, Hungary and Romania. Presentation and production was by me, Emma Wallace. Editing was by Marion McGregor and mixing was done in the DW Studios by Gerke Orgi. The music was by kind permission of Chinese Man Music in France. <laughs>